Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. And we ask you to take your word this morning and equip us. God, we ask you to take your word this morning and refresh in our hearts and refresh in our minds. We ask you to take your word this morning and correct us. God, we ask that you'd have your way with our thinking today by the power of your word. We ask this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure over Christmas you were tempted or even had to sit down next to your great uncle or your uncle and had to hear from your great uncle or your uncle say something like the following. Well, let me tell you how it was when I was a child. (laughs) You can learn from my ways of how I used to do things. And I'm sure as you heard those words, something had to go through your mind like, it's not like it was back in your days, Uncle Joe. Right? You hear the phrases from people, well, back in my day, and you usually respond with, well, it's not like back in your day at all. Well, this morning, what can we possibly learn from some astrologers? What can we possibly learn from some magicians that were on a journey over 2,000 years ago. They didn't even have cell phones with GPS. What can we possibly learn from people that had to ride camels and came from a different country and began to gather around the baby Jesus? This morning, we look at the story of the Magi, who sometimes we refer to as the three kings or the wise men. Well, as we think of the Magi this morning, the wise men, our attention turns to them and we're kind of enamored with them because they have, they have a spot in the manger scene in many of our homes. We're kind of enamored with them because they bring good, big gifts for the baby Jesus. We're enamored with them because they travel a long distance and there's this magical star that appears and, and directs them. Well, the reality is that we're enamored with them but we don't know much about them, nor do we need to know much about them, nor is the goal that we 
get enamored with them. This morning, our goal is not to learn much about the Magi or the wise men, because frankly, we don't know anything about them. We don't even know how many there were. I hate again, I had Christmas Eve, I was correcting Christmas songs, and this morning, I'm correcting Christmas songs. We don't know if there was three or 30. More than likely, there was 30. There was a bundle of them. Not just because there was three, a lot of times people say, well, there was three gifts. There must have been three of them. Well, they were, they were bringing gifts on behalf of people. We got no idea how many there were. We have no idea where exactly they were coming from. We have no idea when they came and visited Jesus. It was sometime between birth and the age two. But outside of that, we don't have anything good outside of speculation of when that was. We know pretty certain they didn't come to the actual manger. So again, we don't know a lot about the Magi, and that's okay. We don't have to know a lot about the Magi. The goal this morning is not to learn from three old wise men. The goal this morning is to know what are the truths that we find in this story about some visiting Magi that came to visit the baby Jesus. And how do the same truths that brought those Magi also bring us and change us? So this morning, just want to reflect for a few moments on this story that's familiar to us, draw out a couple of truths, and with each truth, ask us a personal question that will hope force us to personally reflect upon this newborn king. The main message from Matthew chapter 2 this morning is actually pretty simple. The main message is this, Jesus is the long-waited-for Messiah and should be honored as such. Jesus is the long-waited-for Messiah and should be honored as such. We see that he's the long-waited Messiah by the fact that there's these magi or these wise men that are looking for this king who should be coming. You see, there was this known news that at some point there was going to be a ruler king coming that was for all the nations. Even King Herod knew this. So look with me, if you would, at Matthew chapter 2. Even King Herod knows this. He, the Magi come and they say to him, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so the Magi knew that when this certain star rose, that there was this king, this ruler who was coming. This king, king of the Jews, was more than just king of the Jews. He was a coming Messiah. And this is what causes the trouble with King Herod. So we see here in Matthew chapter 2 that King Herod is troubled. We see this in verse 3. It says, When King Herod heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. They weren't troubled just because there was this other king coming, this other king born. They were troubled because there was this Messiah king born. And the reason that they were troubled is because this Messiah king was going to be the ruler of all people. And so Herod knew his throne was now in trouble. Herod knew that his throne was now going to be in question if this was the Messiah. And that's why we see that what doesn't get talked about very often at all, because again, it doesn't shed a good light on Christianity. After the Magi leave, Herod gives an order, all babies under the age of two are to be killed. What would cause someone to kill that many children? We don't know how many children it was, but we know that children 
were killed. Well, why would someone kill someone under the age of two? It's because the king knows that this one under the age of two is going to be the Messiah, the one who's going to rule all people for all ages. And Herod does not want to submit to that throne. Jesus is this Messiah. The Messiah is the long-waited-for king who's going to restore everything. The Messiah we sang about earlier today in the worship service. Jesus Messiah. And as we sang that song, Jesus Messiah, that song actually tells the story really well of what Jesus came to do. Lord of all came as a ransom from heaven. It's exactly what a Messiah does. A Messiah comes and redeems us, and then the Messiah is Lord of all. So if you want to know what a Messiah is, a Messiah is a restoring ruler. A restoring ruler, because Jesus comes and restores through the forgiveness of sins, but then at the exact same time, he also rules. He is a king. And that's why Herod is threatened. Herod is threatened because he knows that there is a coming king who's going to rule over everything. Whenever somebody's power is put into question, attention begins to arise. Now, I know that I am a control freak on steroids thing, but I also know that everybody in this room has a little bit of control freak problem themselves as well. And whenever authority begins to enter into our territory, begins to enter into our hearts, what do we do? We kick back a little bit because we don't want to give up any control. So just as when King Herod knows that his personal power, his personal authority is going to be challenged, what does he do? He fights against it. You and I do the exact same thing. When someone tells us, do it this way, our normal response is, well, who says so? Who are you to tell me? Even if it's a good idea, that's why they always train managers to do what? Get them, if you're a good manager, you want to help that person think that it's their own idea because then they'll implement the idea. Well, what if it's just a good idea? Why not just tell them and have them implement it? It's because all of us have a little power challenge. All of us have a little authority challenge. We need to tell ourselves and then we'll gladly do it. Well, Jesus, when he comes as the restoring ruler comes to take the throne on our own hearts. Just as King Herod was challenged because he knew that someone was going to come and take his place of authority, each of us are oftentimes challenged because we know Jesus wants to have the throne of our hearts. This morning, when we look at this story, we see that Jesus is the restoring ruler. Well, the question is very simple for us this morning then. Does Jesus have ruling power in your life? Does Jesus have ruling power in your life? If he is who he says he is, and if he is who King Herod even thinks he's going to be, if he is who the religious leaders say who's coming from Bethlehem, if this is who he is, he deserves to have ruling power in our lives because he is the restoring ruler. Not only is he the restoring ruler, but he's actually the one in who the ideal is realized. 
This is the second part of being the Messiah. The first part is the restoring ruler. The second part is when you're the Messiah, in the Messiah is where the ideal is realized. What I mean by that is this. In Jesus, we find what it means to live the perfect life. In Jesus, we find the prototype of what God wants all humanity to be. This is why in the Bible, we've got some areas in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. You see, the first Adam that it talks about in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 was created and given life. What happened with the first humans, they chose sin over God. Well, then what happened? All of humanity after Adam followed suit and they chose sin rather than God as well. So that's why sometimes we're um, related to Adam or we're kind of compared to Adam because we're like Adam. Well, then when Jesus came, Jesus was the new Adam because what Jesus does, Jesus does not choose sin, but Jesus chooses God. So when Jesus is in the garden and he's bleeding blood, the moment of truth has come for Jesus. What does he do? Father, not my will, but thy will be done. So in Jesus, we have a new prototype, the true Adam. Jesus is the perfect human being. So the ideal is realized. Have you ever had a situation maybe growing up where your mom or your dad said to you, well, why can't you just be like so-and-so? They're just perfect. And so your mom and dad maybe had spent only a little bit of time with another person's kid, and they only saw the good behavior in that kid. So they thought, oh, if my kid could just be like them. What they were doing is elevating them and saying, that's the ideal child. If, I mean, if you could just be just like them. Well, in Jesus, we have the ideal human being. It's realized who we are meant to be. What, do you have the ideal child thing? I'm looking at Mr. Brewer this morning. Thing. In Jesus, the ideal is realized, or another way of thinking of it is this. In Jesus, the wisdom of God is found. That if you want to be wise in the eyes of God, where do you look? You look to Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm not going to read it all, but verse 18 down through verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 down through verse 30. The Apostle Paul goes into a little message here of comparing the wisdom of the world to the way of God. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we are preached to save those who believe. So what God, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is he's saying, hey, where's all of the wise ones? 
the wise ones aren't coming to God according to the wisdom of the world. Because the wisdom of the world is not the wisdom of God. Now look down with me, if you would, to verse 30. We get right to the heart of it, and he says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So when we say that in Jesus the ideal is realized, what we're saying is in Jesus we find the perfect wisdom of God. If you want to know what's wise, if you want to be wise, he's basically saying here, you look to the person, Jesus. If you read the Old Testament and you start comparing it with the New Testament, what you end up seeing is in the Old Testament foreshadows of everything that is to come. And then sometimes in the New Testament, it'll reflect back. So if you read like the book of Hebrews, for example, it'll talk about this high priest that lived in the Old Testament. And then it says, now Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest. Also in the Old Testament, you've got King David. King David was just a foreshadow of the future powerful king, Jesus. Well, the same is true then, the book of Proverbs. As you read the book of Proverbs, it's actually a foreshadow of the one to come who is wise, Jesus himself. And so then, in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We've read that message the last couple of Sundays. That word means logo, logos in Greek. That is actually the fulfillment of wisdom, the word spoken in the book of Proverbs. So actually, Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the book of Proverbs. What's the book of Proverbs? the book of wisdom. So what we see in Jesus, we see the complete wisdom of God revealed to humanity, the word of God. And so when you want to understand, you want to be wise, and I would contend this morning that everybody here wants to be wise. I don't think anyone this morning, this afternoon is going to be like, I, just, I hope I make a foolish decision today. We all want to be wise. Well, if we want to be wise, the place to look for wisdom is Jesus himself. For in Jesus, the ideal is realized. He is the wisdom of God. When you and I make decisions, there's a couple of reasons for why we do what we do. One of the reasons that we do for what we do is because we've always done it that way, our personal experience or tradition. So we'll say to someone, well, that was a good decision. And one of the reasons we might say that was a good decision is because we know that it's always been done that way, so they're falling right in line. Good decision. Another reason that we might say to someone, hey, good decision, is because the majority believe it's a good decision, right? And so if the majority think it's good, it must be good. Therefore, that was the wise thing to do. Or another reason we think something is wise or is a good decision, if it personally benefits or profits us, right? So it's wise if we make a profit from it. I mean, who would ever say it's foolishness if you make profit? So those are the main reasons why we make decisions, what would cause us to say something was good. If it's done because of tradition, if it's done because the majority say so, or it's done because it profits us. The wisdom of God works completely different than all three completely different. Think of Jesus himself, the way it was always done. 
ruling kings did not come from Bethlehem. Ruling kings came from great families. Jesus did not do things the way it had always been done. How about the majority? When Jesus was teaching, the majority were not exactly agreeing with him. The majority wanted to kill him. How about the issue of profit? Jesus gave up the ultimate profit-sharing plan. He had all of the riches at his fingertips, and he became poor by coming to humanity. If you look at the wisdom of the world, you would say to Jesus, Jesus, you make no sense, according to the wisdom of the world. But Jesus is the wisdom of God. And in Jesus, the ideal is realized. Well, this morning, how about you? Are you being wise in the eyes of God? Are you being wise in the eyes of God? Or are you being wise in the eyes of the world? We saw a direct contrast, and we're not going to spend more time there, but in 1 Corinthians 1, it sets up just right against each other. The wisdom of the world is folly to God, and the wisdom of God is folly to the world. This morning, are you wise in the eyes of God? If you want wisdom, study the life and the person and the teachings of Jesus Christ. For in Jesus is the wisdom of God. And now this brings us to the Magi a little bit. The Magi, well, we do know they're some sort of astrologers or they're magicians. Um, They're basically, you could put it very simple, they are wisdom seekers. They are wisdom seekers. So why are they interested in this one who has been born, King of the Jews? Because they're interested in the ultimate wisdom They are seeking out truth and wisdom. And in Jesus, they know that the ultimate wisdom is found because in Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is the restoring ruler. He is the wisdom of God. Now the question is, if Jesus is the long-waited-for Messiah, the question is, will we give him the honor that is due his name? Look with me, if you would, very quickly in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, look at the end of the passage here. Verse 11. The Magi have found Jesus and Mary. Matthew 2, verse 11, and it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. What do the Magi do? The Magi come and give honor to Jesus that is due his name. Now, what I'd like you to do in your Bible this morning, there is something extremely important to see here. Verse 11, if you have a pen with you, underline, they fell down, and then underline, worshipped. It's very interesting that this is found in two different words, because the word worship means simply to, to prostrate oneself down on the ground, just basically lay oneself down on the ground in front of someone who is higher. They could have, the, the, Matthew could have just said, they came and worshipped. And the reader would have known they laid down and gave honor to, to Jesus. But he distinguishes here between they physically come and bow and then they give worship. You can go through the physical act of bowing. You can go through the physical motions of coming to worship and still not worship. 
The physical act itself of participating in a worship service is not worshiping. One can go through the motions and actually not bring adoration to God Himself. The question this morning is not, are you showing up? The question this morning is, are you adoring Jesus with your life? To worship means to bow down. It does, because that is to give honor and worth to someone who is greater than you. But you can physically bow down and still not ascribe honor and worth to the one who is greater than you. This morning, we see that the Magi come and they physically bow down because it's the appropriate cultural thing to do when you enter into someone's midst who's greater than you. But they don't just physically bow down. They also offer honor to the one who is greater than them. This morning, are you coming and adoring the one who is greater than all of us? Jesus, our King. And then look what happens. And I know this is touchy because we don't like to talk about in church money, but look what they do. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Basically what the Magi do is they come and they offer God their best. There's a lesson in, for us in this right here. That if we're going to truly give someone the honor due their name, do they get our best? One of the things that we are most guilty of as, as Christians, and we calm our consciences by this, we all know that we have a lot, right? For the most part, the most of us have a lot. And so this is what we do. We get to the point where we realize we have a lot, and then we're like, I should just get rid of some stuff and downsize. So what do we do? We start giving away some of our stuff, our used stuff. And it helps us feel better because we're starting to get rid of some of our stuff. But we're not given our best. We're not given something that hurts us. We're actually not given our treasure. We're given our leftover junk. I'm not saying don't give away the stuff that you're not, not using. The point is, are we giving our treasure or are we giving our junk to the Lord? Very simple question for us. Does our giving ascribe the honor due to Jesus? Does our giving ascribe the honor due to Jesus? And we all know what this is like in human terms, right? You know all what it's like to receive a gift where you're like, this is minuscule. Why give me anything if you're going to give me this? We all know what that's like in human terms to give something like that that really doesn't match what the person deserves and or to receive something like that. Same is true then in our relationship with God. Are we giving God something that shows Him the honor that He is due? Do we give God something that reflects that He is the Messiah, restoring ruler of all? The author uh, John Piper, who's written a lot on treasuring Christ above all things, has an interesting quote when writing about giving. He says that whenever we give, we should give to the point where we're saying to Jesus the following, you are my treasure, not these things. Does our giving say that God is our treasure, not these things? 
I actually would contend we need to take it one step further and not ask the question, does our giving say that God is our treasure, but does our living say God is our treasure above all this stuff? If Jesus Christ is the long-waited-for Messiah, the one who restores and rules over everything, the one in whom we find the wisdom of God, are we honoring Him with all that we have? This morning, it's not about the Magi at all. But it's about the one the Magi came to worship. And here's the most astonishing thing about the whole story from my perspective. The Magi come and worship, and the Magi have not heard one story about Jesus doing something fabulous. The Magi have not seen one miraculous event from Jesus. In the rest of the Gospels, what we see is we begin to see people start coming to Jesus because they're like, hey, Jesus heals us of our leprosy. Hey, Jesus casts out demons. So everywhere else we see that people are coming to Jesus because they've either heard about this guy that heals everyone or they've seen this miraculous work. The Magi come. They have not heard of a single miracle because there hasn't been a single miracle yet. They come and they haven't seen a single miracle because there hasn't been a single miracle yet. Yet they still come and give honor. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah. This morning, the question is not, has God done something for you that you should respond to? The question is very simply, have we given God what is due His name? Whether If God never did anything for us at all, outside of giving us life, we would still owe Him one thing. Worship. For He is due honor no matter what is done unto us for who He is. We come to Jesus this morning not for the benefits of Jesus. We come to Jesus this morning for who Jesus is. The restoring ruler. The king above all other kings. This morning, I invite you to come. There's no star to follow. But there is a word to hear. A Bible to be opened that tells us about this Jesus. Come and worship that king. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks to you this morning that you have come into our midst. We praise you for your wisdom, and we ask, O oh Lord, that you give us your wisdom. Help us to see things the way you see things. We also pray this morning, O oh Lord, that you would be the ruler of our hearts. God, we pray that when we have a power struggle with you, that you would give us the humility to acknowledge you as king, to acknowledge your authority. And God, this morning we ask that you'd work in us an act of worship. God, transform our hearts and our minds to bring you honor in all that we do. God, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for coming to us. We offer ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.